Hi, everybody. Welcome to the inaugural meeting of uh, the Helix Center for the 2015-2016 uh, season. I'm Rob Penzer. I'm the Associate Director. And we have some terrific programs in store for you. But before I even tell you anything more, if you could silence your cell phones, um, that would be helpful in terms of the electronics in here for our recording. On uh, Saturday, October 3rd, uh, Understanding Genius with Steve Sue, who's the Vice President for Research and Professor of Theoretical Physics at Michigan State, Rex Young, Associate Professor of Neurosurgery at University of New Mexico, Joanne Ruthzatz, Assistant Professor of Psychology at Ohio State, and Dean Keith Simonton, who's Distinguished Professor of Psychology at UC Davis. Then on Saturday, October 24th, The Realm of Mystery. Saturday, November 7th, Speak Memory. Saturday, November 21st, Translation Matters. And then we have a special symposium in conjunction with the ADAPES uh, uh, Cultural Institute of, of Paris on December 4th, 5th, and 6th, a Freudian perspective on what ails contemporary culture. For further details on all of these, please go to our website, helixcenter.org, which is completely revised as of today, thanks to Eric O'Hanlon, our web developer and designer at Columbia University and EJ Digital Media. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook, too. Now to today's roundtable, Epigenetics at Work. And when I announce your name, if you could raise your hand so the audience can identify you properly. Francis Champagne, Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology at Columbia University. Zachary Kaminsky, Assistant Professor in the Department of Psychology and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and jointly appointed in the Department of Mental Health in the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Fei Li, Assistant Professor of Biology at New York University, and Jessica Tyler, Professor, Department of Epigenetics and Molecular Carcinogenesis, the University of Texas MD Anderson Center. Okay, now we'll start. I can ask you what is epigenetics? Uh, I, I think there are a lot of definitions actually in epigenetics. So, in, in my opinion, epigenetics uh, have two uh, major properties. One is uh, a biological phenomena that is uh, independent of uh, DNA sequence. And the second one, I think, is uh, being heard through the cell cycle generation. What's interesting about um, definitions of that term is how you define it is really much shaped by the training that you've had or the field that you've come from. And we've, in my lab, we have a lot of discussions about um, about this this particular phenomenon. So, if you're coming from the field of genetics, then epigenetics typically will be something that needs to be heritable because that's what genetics is really the science of genetics is dealing with. Um, if you're coming from a field that's looking more at molecular biology and gene regulation, then heritability is not necessary for your inclusion um, of, in, the, in the definition of epigenetics. It's really about processes that regulate gene activity without modifying the underlying gene sequence. 
Um, but I'd say there's still debates. Um, the, the funding agencies define it for us, <laughs> which um, it was just a good definition to use because that will define who gets money on epigenetics. And they use a fairly broad um, definition that does not require that the, the um, demonstration that it is heritable. In fact, there's very few actual demonstrations of heritability of an epigenetic mark, so it's best that they probably deviate from, from constraining our definition. And to make it even more confusing, there's an intermediate definition, which is the inheritance of, an e of information independent of DNA information from cell to the daughter cell when a cell divides. So that happens throughout our body all the time, which is different from passing on the information to your daughters or your, your offspring. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the common misconceptions when we talk about, when we go onto Wikipedia and we read what is epigenetics and we see that, you know, that, you know, these chemical modifications that are, are heritable. What that means is indeed, just to reiterate that point, um, it's passed from cell to cell. But what we really don't know and what has fascinating implications are, what does this mean for our kids? You know, in the past, we had thought that, you know, whatever we did didn't matter because it was all just our genetic code, our DNA, the blueprint of the machines of the cells. So this blueprint, the DNA, is this, the same in every cell of the body. And this gets, this gets passed um, to our kids, and it's fairly robust. So it doesn't matter if we smoke or if we drink or what we do. But now epigenetics comes along, and it, it throws this twist in that, hey, you know, what if what I'm doing can be passed to my children, and all of a sudden the game has changed. And that's what I think makes this other inheritance, this transgenerational epigenetic inheritance, fascinating. And it's definitely something worth a lot of discussion, and it's, it's also controversial. Um, I think that there's two sides to the issue, so maybe we should find out what side everyone's on. <laughs> I agree. I think that's why I think the epigenetics can have profound impact on ourselves, because that means what we do and what we experience could have effect on ourselves and also our children. Okay. Although this, this evidence to show that epigenetic code can be passed, transmitted through cell cycle to cell cycle, uh, but at least in mammals, whether this epigenetic information can be inherited to the next generation, to the grandchildren, uh, I think uh, uh, still limited the evidence. Maybe uh, you can give more. I would say so. I mean, I think there's phenomenological suggestion that something of that nature is going on. Um, but it's a challenging question. It's not that people aren't asking the question. People are asking the question. It's a really methodologically challenging thing to do. So much remodeling is going on um, mm -hmm. when the sperm and egg come together um, that it's really hard to look at the time course uh, at which these molecular changes are going on and seeing what is actually, is, are the epigenetic kind of baggage that these cells are bringing with them, is it being removed and re replaced? Is it, you know, what is going on? And that, that's really challenging. But certainly in the, I guess, in the, in the behavioral models, especially when it comes to 
paternal effects, mm -hmm. there's fairly strong suggestion that at least something is going through the germ cells. So, right, for example, right. you know, we do a lot of experiments. Now, again, most of this evidence is coming from laboratory animals, so we're not, you mm -hmm. know, we can certainly see patterns um, in long-lived species, but it's very hard to look at transgenerational inheritance in, in a mechanistic way in humans. Yeah. But if you take cell sperm from mm -hmm. a male that has had some sort of life exposure, variation, nutrition, or stress, and you take that cell and you fertilize an egg and you implant that egg into another female, you can see effects predicted by the male's experience in the subsequent offspring. So that does suggest that something mm -hmm. is going through the sperm. Although there are, could be other processes at, at play and there could be other things going on. A sperm is a cell and it carries other things besides DNA and epigenetic modifications. Right. So we don't know what it is, but something is going through. And I think that is actually a very big change to the way in which we've thought about the, the process of inheritance in general, right? So mm -hmm. it is not a wipe away everything, here's your new genome, work with it and start anew. Actually, there's probably a lot that is already in place and, and preformed. And, you know, I think the genomic imprinting literature has really helped to create some basis for the suggestion that this inheritance is going on. And so we know that there are genes that, in a sense, carry a molecular memory of which parent they came from. They're either silenced or active, depending on whether you inherited that section of your genome from your mother or father. So that suggests that something in your own genome has been influenced by the parent that you got it from. But then it's the question of whether we can extrapolate this right. to non-imprinted genes and other and environmentally induced phenomenon that I think is still questionable. So I have a question about genomic imprinting. Doesn't that get re-established when you still have chemicals and molecules around other than the DNA from the mother and the father, from the egg? cell and the sperm cell. So there is erasure and reestablishment. Right, in the germline it's all yes. um, erased, but when it's reestablished? Yes. I thought you still had some, you know, some of the environment. You still have maternal factors. Right that are probably driving the imprinting process in general. Right. So there is something that is driving it from, from the mothers. And that's why studying maternal transmission through the germline is avoided <laughs> quite actively because we can't remove the environment from the germline in that case. Whereas we suspect that to be more the case with fathers. Though, um, you know, father sperm can influence the maternal environment and so on. So there's a lot of Unique processes. Yeah, oh. there is uh, evidence. Like uh, in 1944, this uh, Dutch famine, you know, mm -hmm. the very uh, famous uh, example that uh, the the starvations uh, through the grandparents they can affect, you know, uh, the grandchildren. So uh, this evidence, I think, there is some evidence the transgenerational epigenetic inheritance, uh, but still, I think the molecular mechanism for me is still unclear. Mm -hmm. You mentioned during germline you know, uh, uh, stage and also fertilization, they can have drastic epigenetic reprogramming. Absolutely. They tend to erase you know, that the previous epigenetic marks. And 
how this epigenetic information can be inherited through, I think, uh, um, for me, it's still a challenge to, to understand. But I thought the effect mm. of the Dutch famine only persisted a few generations. A few yeah, generations. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. And it's complicated, especially with women, because women carry inside them the cells that are going to produce our offspring. You know, they're developed, even, let's say I was pregnant and I had a female baby in me, that baby already has inside it produced the cells that are going to be that baby's babies. So if my diet, my nutrition is really poor, I'm not only affecting me and the epigenetic marks on my genome, but also on my baby and my baby's baby. So this is why the great-grandchildren, it's really important that an effect be seen in the great-grandchildren of a female in order for it to be really transgenerational inheritance. Absolutely. But, I mean, it's still completely valid that what we do in our, the way we eat, the way we smoke, our lifestyle, there's mm -hmm. clear evidence from studies from Francis and other people that that affects the health of your offspring in severe ways, like um, likelihood of having obesity, diabetes, short lifespan, I mean, major effects due to our own diet. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and those effects, you know, in some sense, it doesn't matter if it's going through the germline or going through some other factor. It means that the lifestyle or life exposures of one generation can absolutely have an effect sub in subsequent generations, grand, grand offspring, even great grand offspring. Right. And so I think that realization is, is probably very important from a policy standpoint. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it, you can separate that from this, the controversy over whether there is this mark that is being retained even when there's no exposure to poor nutrition or stress. Indeed. Yeah, we've been studying genetics for a long time, well over 30 years. Right. And, and why? Why have we been studying genetics? Because family studies and twin studies have said that diseases are heritable. Well, what does that mean? You know, what we do is we compare genetically identical individuals monozygotic twins to fraternal twins or dizygotic twins, twins that have uh, differing amounts of uh, polymorphisms or, you know, sometimes called mutations in the DNA. And we see that, hey, the dizygotic twins, the fraternal twins are more dissimilar than the monozygotic twins for various traits. We can measure how, how much does one twin get schizophrenia versus the other. We call this twin discordance. And it, it makes a nice example for, for heritability. So if we see that more of a particular disease starts to happen with dizygotic twins, we say, well, we know that their genomes are different, so it must be genetic factors. But when it comes to, um, well, one of the problems is that we've been looking for 30 years and finding these mm -hmm. factors hasn't happened. It hasn't really happened. And, you know, so now, you know, the genetics community is, you know, pouring millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars into this, and we have mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, well, not that many, maybe about 100,000 individuals in these giant um, genome-wide studies, and we're starting to find some very small, significant effects. So 
but not enough, not enough to account for schizophrenia, depression. And so it begs the question, well, what, what else is there? And this is where epigenetics comes in. And so to tie back to what we were talking about, okay, mm -hmm. so mom's you know, state of mind when she's pregnant can affect the baby. And how does this happen? Well, turns out, and this is sort of a, a new area, and a number of publications have been coming out in the last couple years, really. It's, it's really in its infancy. But if mom is anxious, this actually correlates with epigenetic changes in key regions of our stress response genes, but not ours, in babies, babies' stress response genes, as well as a number of sort of, sort of early um, measures like, you know, baby's cortisol response or um, this methylation mark, this epigenetic mark in these genes. And so it's a really compelling argument that, hey, maybe the reason we're seeing heritability, maybe the reason where we're seeing these traits inherited is because, let's say, mom is depressed and then she becomes pregnant, and then this is going to affect uh, the baby's uh, stress response uh, or stress axis, the HPA axis, and this is a, a major risk factor for mm -hmm. subsequent psychiatric comorbidities. And so we're really passing a trait, not necessarily through the sperm and through the egg, although it's a possibility, a controversial possibility, but what is not as controversial is this idea that uh, it is being passed uh, through what we call a transgenerational epigenetic effect as opposed mm -hmm. to transgenerational uh, epigenetic inheritance. And I think, you know, that's something that makes uh, the study of, of epigenetics very compelling. I do, mm -hmm. also did read a, an interesting so why study. why do you call it epigenetic effect? I'm not understanding. If it doesn't have to do with modifications, then why is it epigenetic? Well, so I think it's called an epigenetic effect. So. Um, I think Emma Whitelaw, who uh, was one of the first labs to find one of these famous inherited uh, epigenetic phenotypes in this in this mouse strain, the agouti mouse. Um, it's a it's a classical mouse example where an epigenetic difference, a DNA methylation difference. Um, sometimes I'll I'll say epigenetic, sometimes DNA methylation. DNA methylation can compacted DNA, it acts like a light switch, and it turned off this gene that caused the mouse coat color to, uh, to change. And what's, what was really interesting about this example, and I'm digressing for a minute, but it's, I'll get back to it, um, is that uh, this effect was passed on uh, to the offspring. You could also drive the effect with uh, different nutritional factors when the mother was pregnant, which was interesting. But anyway, um, Emma Whitelaw was saying she needs, you know, a terminology to distinguish between these passed on traits that go through the germline, which she was saying is transgenerational epigenetic inheritance, versus those that are passed, for example, uh, through stresses to a mom when she's pregnant, or possibly behavioral changes that uh, a mother may confer, or father, a stressful environment uh, when a child is in a critical stage, like when they're a baby, through things like uh, maternal neglect, possibly postpartum depression, um, abuse, uh, these sorts of things. So I think um, it's really just a terminology to try to distinguish those, those two. Um, but it's so, actually very interesting because you mentioned, okay, Emma Whitelaw has uh, very strong opinions on the use of the term inheritance. So with very constrained views on when it should be used. And, and you outline exactly why she's done that. But we have a much looser use of the term. You can inherit money and you don't have to be biologically related to the individual you get them from. But, you know, and so rather than thinking of, you know, transmission, 
which could entail any mechanism. Inheritance is really much about this kind of biological material um, and uh, around the DNA but being the transmitted. The way I had understood it, maybe my understanding is already 15 years old, was, was that epigenetic had to do with uh, what you said, DNA methylation. Right. So that's why if, if there is a DNA, something on the side of the DNA that is methylated, isn't that what epigenetic transfer means that goes yeah. there for? Basically, these modifications, either DNA modifications or some histone proteins with associated with DNA. So these modifications can change the structure of the chromatin, uh, the, the, the DNA structures. So through that, they can affect the gene expression. They either turn down the gene or turn off, turn on or turn off the genes. So that's through the. Well, isn't that inheritance? It depends if you're going through the germline and through meiosis, or whether you're just going through cell division and mitosis. That is not really inheritance, but it's still epigenetic if you're going through mitosis. Or if the environment in utero is affecting the growing baby, that is not inheritance because it's going through the, the cell cycles more. I think so epigenetics is a broad word. Broad term, mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, we go back a, li a little bit. Why nature need epigenetics, right? So the genetics based on the DNA sequence, you change on the DNA. But epigenetics based on you change uh, the modification of the proteins, histones, like uh, or DNA modification. So why they need this system? Uh, one thing I, th I think to change DNA is difficult. It's not taking long term. Uh, but the epigenetics code is more uh, diverse and flexible and also reversible. Okay. And uh, I think it's both way the biological organisms respond to environment. They, they take either genetics and the epigenetics pathways. The epigenetics have this disadvantage, I mean, have these advantages to respond quickly. And this phenomena can be uh, reversed also. Yeah, there's an example I like mm -hmm. to use um, for that. Yeah, why, why would maternal stress be good, ultimately? Let's say we're a caveman, and there's all sorts of dinosaurs around, right? That's accurate, right? Um, <laughs> we, you know, and it's a very dangerous environment. Well, you know, what do our genes want? Our genes want us to survive long enough to reproduce, okay? They don't care if you live forever and ultimately get depression. They just want you to live into your 20s, um, or maybe earlier in caveman times and reproduce. And so if it's a very dangerous time, you want your offspring to be jumpy. And so if m mom is jumpy and you're having a baby and the baby is not gonna go down to the water hole and just start you know, being lackadaisical, you want them to respond to, to twigs uh, and so they stay alive. And, and this makes a lot of sense. That is exactly how epigenetics can help us. But um, you know, of course in a society like ours where we're um, you know, obviously not necessarily adapted in the same way. Um, it, we may see some deleterious consequences of that. I did want to return to one aspect, and we were talking about, you know, what is epigenetics and, and molecular marks. I did, um, and I admit to not reading in detail, but this is sort of a bullet point from a review paper I was reading, talking about, you know, what are some of those possible molecular marks that could cause uh, an epigenetic effect to, or an epigenetic phenomena to be inherited. And uh, what was really interesting um, was uh, when they took microRNA mm -hmm.
from sperm of fathers that were exposed to stress and injected the microRNA into the uh, fertilized oocyte, they were able to create the same uh, behavioral effect in the offspring. And, you know, there's, uh, there's epigeneticists who will say, oh, microRNA is or is not, you know, epigenetic. But I think, you know, the key is, is that um, it's not necessarily just written on the DNA. It's, it's supposed to be a DNA sequence independent effect. So, so that it's, um, so, you know, are we going to cut microRNA some slack and allow it to confer inheritance if the evidence goes that way? Then, then maybe. But it's just, I throw it out there as a, uh, something interesting I read as a possible mechanism through which, you know, we might confer inheritance. And, and this is, of course, important because the, the typical ones, and something that we haven't really stressed, is that they get erased. And that's why we think that's why it's controversial. Because when, you know, sperm are developing and the eggs are developing, meiosis, um, and when uh, we have fertilization, we have these massive erasures of our DNA methylation and our histone marks. And so, you know, the simple answer is that, oh, that, that takes care of everything. Well, then why are we seeing, you know, traits passed on in this way? And so I think it's important to point out that, you know, that's one of the reasons it's controversial. Yeah, absolutely. But the RNA, the small RNAs that Zach's talking about, there's evidence that the RNAs direct DNA methylation. So there's RNA-dependent DNA methylation. So the RNAs, if they're inherited, they could help reestablish the methylation patterns, which then themselves affect the chromatin structure, which affects gene expression. I agree. So it's evidence in uh, fishing yeast, in silicons, even plant. This this small RNA uh, play a very important role. So they can inherit it to next generations, then guide it to the, like DNA methylations. Uh, his modifications to uh, ensure the inheritance of the same epigenetic information. Yeah. What's interesting about the erasure um, assumption is that it is based on studies that were conducted quite a long time ago. So it's become a dogma in the field that there's complete erasure. Um, and certainly there's no doubt that there is genome-wide um, reprogramming. But you know, I'm curious now with the tools that we have available to us where we, we can look more, more than just at a gross level of whether DNA methylation levels dive down, but actually look at a single base resolution to see whether, in fact, you know, even if 1% of the DNA methylation was retained, um, that'd be quite a lot of DNA methylation um, still retained in the genome. But it would seem like most, you know, if 99% of it's gone, it seems like it's been completely erased. But I think that's something that we need to really explore um, in no, more detail. And you're right. And there was two recent studies done in mice primordial germ cells, which did exactly that. They did detailed DNA sequencing, mm. a, a DNA methylation sequencing across the whole genome, and they actually found there was about 4,000 loci that did not lose the DNA methylation. Yeah. And most of these loci were transposable elements. So actually most of the human genome is made up of transposable elements that are usually kept silent all the time. And there's a few of them that are not silent and they can still move around the genome. And when they, these are pieces of DNA, when they move around the genome, they're actually 
introducing mutations into the genome. And amazingly enough, where the methylation was retained was on these transposable elements. So there seems to be some mechanism that we have no idea yet how it works at the molecular level, whether they're being protected from this global erasure of the methylation marks. So that would be really exciting yeah. to figure out that mechanism. And there were some early studies as well doing cross-species um, pronuclei transfer. So <laughs> taking nuclei, putting it in another oocyte of a different species. And depending on the oocyte context, you get less or more erasure. So there's probably a lot of oocyte factors that are directing the degree of erasure of these imprints. And, and so that's a really interesting source of individual variation and whether these marks actually persist. And it could well be these small RNAs because mm -hmm. yeah. transposable elements generate um, pi RNAs, right? Right, I think so. Yeah, this cluster of, uh, you know, um, I haven't read about them for a, a year or two, but yes, yeah, something that they're basically the designed repeats, to silence yeah. these elements. Um, indeed. Sorry. Yeah, I've also heard about that uh, during this Golden Conference. You know, in the sperm, histone usually uh, replaced by a protein. That's right. right. But now you realize actually at least some still there, like 5%, mm -hmm. and some even still maintain the histone marks of the previous generations. So that also, as you said, could play a role in the transgenerational inheritance. Yeah, also. and so yeah. Some, it was interesting. So one of, the, one of the studies that focused on histones and, and their role in transmission looked at cocaine exposure in males. And their findings were exclusively in histones where you see this retention, as you say. Although I, I wonder whether it's being retained or reapplied. I mean, that's, I guess the question is that there's a, a lot of area that we don't know from when we go from one generation to the next about what exactly is going on. But certainly, if you look multiple generations, you'll see the mark. It's whether it's staying there or whether it's just being reapplied. That's the question. Yeah. I think I did read one study um, where various histone variants had been tagged. Um, and they did show that they were retained at least up to the first cell division mm. of after fertilization. But I think it is a, a compelling, you know, source of, of possibility um, that that histone variants that are retained uh, and not replaced by protamines um, could confer some information. It's important to keep in mind that mm -hmm. the 10 to 17 percent that people have detected is enough to account for the entire coding genome. So I mean there's enough information in there in theory. And, but it's also important to keep in mind why is it, you know, why don't we have these answers yet? And it's hard to study this because, you know, it's, it's sort of like the wave particle duality in, in uh, quantum physics. Once you look at that, once you take that sperm and egg that was going to become that mouse, you know, you no longer get to test the mouse later on because you've looked at the at the sperm and egg level. So then, you know, it's really hard to, to look at the exact uh, cells that are going to eventually develop. And I think that's one of the challenges. So we're faced with these averages. We have to take 10,000 sperm or, or a million and, and, and sort of infer uh, what's happening. And the only way to get experimentally at this process involves embryo transfer, in vitro fertilization, which are all very artificial uh, in, in their process and have epigenetic effects mm -hmm. in it of themselves. So this is one of the, the issues that we come across when we do these studies in the lab. We can show it through embryo transfer, but 
you've done something that's completely um, unrelated to the natural process of reproduction and, and whether, whether it's relevant. And I think that you can kind of expand that um, kind of concern to, okay, perhaps we would be able to show epigenetic inheritance in the lab in species that are short-lived, but would it be relevant on a wide-scale process, you know, in, in society and in, in natural environments where you have long-lived species that need to adapt to changing environments all the time? So when people start first start talking about epigenetic inheritance in response to the quality of the social environment, I thought, well, why would you want your social environment to be <laughs> inherited through your germline? That seems nonsensical in terms of adaptation. You should respond to the social environment which you're in uh, and adapt accordingly because that's the best predictor of the, the world that you live in. But um, I, I still think it's possible, um, but I think, I think we need to think about whether these would actually play out in the, in the real world. When you say social environment, I mean, I'm a molecular biologist. Mm. What do you mean exactly? Anything from the quality of mother-infant interactions to peer interactions to, you know, adult social interactions, so whether you're socially isolated or inter interacting with groups. The problem, I guess, is that you can never separate social interactions from stress reactivity, and so stress may be transducing the information. Certainly, we think in the case of mother-infant interactions, it's not, that let's say, that the pure sociality of it, but the, rather the, the physical aspects of mother-infant interactions that are transducing the epigenetic marks. So are you saying that social interactions of a mother can affect the social interactions of the offspring? Well, they certainly can, yes. Well, I know the nurturing studies, but older? Because then how do you separate nurture from nature? In what, be more specific. So what, what's the nature element of it? Um, like if so you're in, around a mother who never interacts with anyone, maybe oh right. you so yourself in, will in, never I work interact. in rodents, right? So right. we have we have control over nature. Everyone's got the same genome. Um, but yes, so the the issue, and I think this is really important in the context of the discussions, is that you in humans you have genetic variation, and you have a lot of what can be called many things, but niche selection. So people find themselves in environments because of biological drives that may be driven by DNA sequence. So it, it is almost impossible to separate out these questions. There's some really interesting work now in humans, now that artificial reproductive technology is so widespread in its use, to look at egg donors and embryo transfer and all, you know, where mothers are carrying offspring that are not genetically related to them and, and all these various combinations. And it does suggest that there are some, some later life characteristics, psychiatric illnesses that are driven by, you know, matches or mismatches between the genetic characteristics of the mother and the genetic characteristics of the offspring, or something about the in utero environment. Um, a lot of the studies now that are focused on human analyses of epigenetics really are, are highlighting that you need to look at both the genetic variation and the epigenetic variation together. So they're not separate entities. Certainly in the lab, we, we treat them like that, but we're working with organisms that don't have genetic variability. But their gene-environment interactions at the level of epigenetic change is, is you know, widespread. And I think you can't, 
you probably won't be able to predict very well later life phenotypes solely based on epigenetic variation in humans. You'll need to know the code. Also, I think uh, uh, how's the epigenetics implication to evolution? So this uh, Lamarck theory. So what do you have uh, the idea? You know, it's interesting. So, um, you know, in some ways, I don't have any strong views on the role of epigenetics in, in evolution. I think it's, it's probably a great mechanism for conferring adaptation, as, as Zach was discussing. So we have genomes. They're fairly stable over generations. They evolve, but it takes typically long periods of time to evolve. But we need to adapt to rapidly changing right. environments. So it confers that. That means we survive. We pass on our genes. So I would predict that genes that confer epigenetic plasticity would be highly selected for, because they would allow us to adapt. Um, but you know, then I think we get more into kind of theoretical, philosophical musings about how, how, how this plays out in evolution. Certainly, there's some suggestion that, you know, we're talking about retrotransposons, areas of epigenetic variability may, or, you know, or stability may be areas where there's also likelihood of genetic variation. So, you know, there may be a process where if there's a lot of epigenetic variation going on, um, you know, between or within generations, perhaps that will stabilize into the genome somehow through genetic variation. But I don't have a lot of strong views on it. I think it's, it, it doesn't have to play out in evolution in, in the way that genes do. I think mm -hmm. it's, it should be its own entity, um, as it should be within the discussions of inheritance. So I'm, I'm more of an inclusive inheritance um, thinker when it comes to the, the term and the mechanisms of inheritance. We can transmit information in a number of ways through social, through parental effects, through genes, through, um, through epigenetics. They're all different mechanisms working together to confer inheritance. But of course, inheritance is just a mechanism that's important for the evolutionary process. It's not the only one. I, I'd like to add to that that I think, you know, if, you know, the standard image of Lamarckian inheritance is, is this, you know, pseudo giraffe animal that isn't yet a giraffe, and then the giraffe stretches tries to stretch its neck, and then over time, right. its efforts to, to change itself, uh, you know, have resulted in changing its genome. And I think, you know, we have to be careful to think that, you know, anything could, you know, let's, let's assume for a moment that epigenetic inheritance does exist, all right? You know, the studies have been done 10 years from now, and, and oh, it turns out things are passed through the germline. It's not going to be everything that we do. It's going to be factors that we know reprogram the epigenome. So we, you know, things that affect us like stress, um, like other hormonal exposures. Mm -hmm. You know, why do, why do we have this, you know, okay, I'm in the psychiatry department, so most of my examples will be uh, psychiatry related, but why do we get these onsets of schizophrenia right after puberty, and why do we have sex differences in depression? Well, you know, and, and what is it with stress? What we have are hormones. We have these factors, um, and this is just one example, but we have steroid hormones, and these steroid hormones bind a particular type of receptor that recruit epigenetic modifiers. Mm -hmm. And so it is not, um, 
that far-fetched to understand why these would reprogram the epigenome. Um, molecular biologists will, will be able to name all the various cofactors um, that are recruited, your NCORs and P300s, and there's many more that um, uh, I'm ignorant of. But it's important to keep in mind that if we do have this passage through the germline, it's going to be in distinct areas and not necessarily everything. And so as we learn more about what changes our epigenome, what specific environmental factors, um, cocaine or smoking or alcohol, we'll be able to understand exactly what's getting passed and why. What type of psychological experiences and why. Oh, this abuse caused a bolus of stress hormone response at this particular developmental time. That's going to get passed on, but it's not going to be stretching the uh, giraffe neck or practicing real hard at basketball to get a scholarship and now my kids are going to be great at basketball. That's not necessarily going to be it. Exercise could cause endorphins, which may affect these systems and then, you know, our our children may have different stress responses um, in the brain, but it, it's not going to be everything that's inherited, and I think that that's important to keep in mind. And so. Lamarck was, you know, very careful in his theorizing. If you actually mm -hmm. read what he says, you will have, have had to have had exposure to an environment mm -hmm. for many, many generations before it becomes propagated through inheritance. Both parents would have to be exposed, so you couldn't mm -hmm. just have one parent, it would have to be both. Um, and what was being propagated had to confer some sort of adaptation to the individual inheriting. So, you know, and we don't use any of those criteria when we're, we're testing these hypotheses, but, mm -hmm. um, and, and also when it comes to Lamar, the prevailing theory of inheritance at the time was pangenesis, which was this idea that little particles of every cell in your body would break off into your gametes and mm -hmm. be transmitted directly to offspring. Now, maybe microRNA are a good you know, part of that story re-emerging, um, but it's certainly a very different way of thinking about inheritance in general than we do now. But I think, you know, I think there's room for Lamarckian ideas. Yeah. Yeah. At least epigenetics provide a potential mechanism for Lamarck's uh, theory. Yeah, yeah, you can inherit it through these epigenetic marks yeah. rather than changing the DNA uh, sequence uh, as like a, a classic Darwinism. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. You mentioned in terms of uh, offspring two situations. One is, let's say, the mother who gets depressed during pregnancy or is depressed and gets pregnant. But another is a mother who gets depressed after the baby is born. Is there a difference? Yeah, so that's, that's a good question. And um, so we know, for example, if we look at the children of women who have postpartum depression, they have a lot of um, problems. They have uh, developmental delays. They have dysregulated stress responses themselves, a higher chance for psychiatric comorbidities. Um, and this has a lot to do with um, Francis's work um, that has to do with maternal uh, offspring bonding and how this can ultimately affect stress systems through epigenetic uh, reprogramming. Um, so, you know, there may be other mechanisms at play, but I think, you know, that's the most uh, highly studied uh, and well known. And what happens during pregnancy is less well studied, but it looks like some of the same gene pathways are being affected. Um, you know, I think that the reason we know that is because we had the targets 
to look at first. You know, it's like, well, well, where should we look at this? You know, um, well, let's look where we know it happens in the postnatal environment. Oh, oh, we see an effect there. Okay, it doesn't mean that that's necessarily the only place that we're going to see um, this effect. But I think, you know, we're basically the message is very similar that both periods could be a risk period. Um, and I think with prenatal depression. There is an assumption, though, you know, a lot of work needs to be done to test whether this is true, that it, the, the signal, the depression, is transduced to the baby through stress hormones and other physiological changes during the pregnancy. We're currently looking at the placenta as something that might be modulated by depression and actually modulate the way the offspring is developing. When it gets to the postnatal period, as Zach mentioned, it's probably more about the dietic interactions between the mothers, so depressed mothers will engage in less positive affect towards the, the baby that will increase stress reactivity um, and they'll they'll engage in less nurturing care and so Yes, yeah. So, uh, I mean, presumed, because in, in humans this has been certainly less studied, although there's some interesting work looking at stroking, so tactile stimulation, that's the kind of rat equivalent of what we look at when we look at maternal care, but, um, you know, certainly depressed mothers engage in less tactile stimulation of their infants. If you give human infants tactile stimulation, it does modulate epigenetics uh, in the infant, so certainly a possibility. And uh, have there been studies of, uh, let's say, post-traumatic disorders, uh, fathers or mothers who then have children, and what happens? There's been some recent studies um, of PTSD um, and in the context of uh, Holocaust survivors and their children, and I think they are seeing certainly epigenetic signatures in offspring and grand offspring as a consequence of a prior generation's trauma. So it does seem that you see the so epigenetic that, mark. On the one hand, the way you said it, it implies that this is uh, proven, but then it seemed that there was some question about this kind of uh, inheritance. Ah, so there's proof that there's proof of an association. There's not proof that the the epigenetic mark has been laid down by the trauma in the first generation and be transmitted like DNA is transmitted to subsequent generations. But the multi-generational correlation in, let's say, you know, characteristics that might be associated with trauma in a previous generation, there's, there's certainly a lot of epidemiological data to, su to support that. But that's not proof of mechanism, it's simply proof of phenomenon. And in terms of cancer, what, what is the relationship of cancer with epigenetics? Cancer and epigenetics. <laughs> um, so many cancers are sporadic, meaning they happen in your body as your body ages. There's, most of them are not genetic per se. There are certain subsets of breast cancer and ovarian cancer that is genetic, but most of them are sporadic. So that means it's not inheritance in, you know, the in the real term of inheritance. But as far as the role of epigenetics in cancer, meaning changes in the histones, changes in the mm -hmm. DNA methylation, which in turn changed the chromatin structure, and the whole relevance of changing the chromatin structure is the result is you change gene expression. So DNA, genetic information, is just information. 
DNA doesn't do anything other than carry information. It's the proteins and the RNAs that are copied from that information that are important, that will make you healthy, will make you sick. And so when the epigenetic information changes from what should be normally going on, that is what will cause disease. So there's clear evidence now that known tumor suppressors like P53, there are thousands and thousands of labs that study P53 and P53 mutation. There's clear evidence now that, so the mutation kills the function of the P53 protein, which normally stops cells dividing out of control. So now it's mutant, the cells will divide out of control, but there's evidence that the P53 gene product is inactivated just as frequently by epigenetic changes, not mutation. And there's growing evidence that that's the case with other important genes that are needed for protection from getting cancer. There's epigenetic changes that stop those genes from being expressed. And it's a harder thing to study. I mean, DNA sequencing is a lot easier than mapping epigenetic profiles. But I think there's a subset of cancer researchers that now believe that epigenetic changes could be the first changes that allow a subset of cells to divide more quickly. If you divide more quickly, you're more prone to DNA mutations. So some of us think that the epigenetic changes will lead to or provide you know, a pool of cells that are selected for, for developing into cancer. And I, th I think of evolution in a very similar mm -hmm. way, that I think these epigenetic changes that can happen quite rapidly mm -hmm. as an environment changes, allows us all to you know, fit a certain niche, and then you have a, a population that is now more prone to a mutation that will stabilize that change in phenotype or behavior. So I think there's a lot of parallels between cancer and evolution. Mm -hmm. um, and also aging, I mean, our cells change as we age. And age is the largest risk factor for most cancers. So many of us are trying to understand the process of aging to try and understand predisposition or delaying the onset of cancer. So yeah, it's a really hot area. And what's really exciting about epigenetic changes is that unlike genetic changes, so changes to your DNA, when your DNA changes, it's pretty much permanent. It cannot be reversed. The technologies are not available for us in the laboratory to reverse mm -hmm. genetic changes, although that is likely to change pretty soon. Mm -hmm. But epigenetic changes, because their epigenetic information is put there by enzymes. So you're adding a chemical group by an enzyme, you're removing a chemical group by an enzyme. There are enzymes can be easily inhibited by designing small molecules or chemicals to block the active site of an enzyme. So there are many drugs that are out there and being developed by all the big pharma companies to block epigenetic enzymes in order to reverse 
these epigenetic changes. So the idea is you can now give these drugs to a cancer patient and now turn on expression of the tumor suppressor gene to stop the cancer cells dividing out of control. So it's a huge area, developing epigenetic drugs and also looking at the epigenetic signature to mm -hmm. see if you can predict you know, outcome of how bad the disease would be and predict which treatments would be more effective depending on not only the DNA sequence but also the epigenetic information. Another way uh, epigenetics uh, is through regulating chromatin structure. Uh, for example, the chromosome organized distinct domains. One important domain called the centromere. Okay. Centromere is important for chromosome segregation during mitosis. Um, if it's misregulated the centromere, they also could cause cancer. Okay. Right, and you get yeah. aneuploidy. That's aneuploidy. when you gain extra. Yeah. Chromosomes. I should have said, actually, the centromere um, that this gentleman studies is actually the only clear evidence of inheritance of a chromatin structure through cell divisions. It's a really interesting and unusual um, mechanism. Right. Yeah, I wanted to return to the issue you just brought up of uh, essentially personalized medicine and the, the hope that epigenetics brings uh, to this aspect of things. So, and yeah, it's a little bit farther away from inheritance, but I mean, you could think of it that, you know, if we do inherit some risk um, for a disease, we may also inherit the ability to better or uh, better metabolize a particular type of antidepressant or not. And we know that some genetic factors allow this to happen, but, um, it's definitely a hot topic that if we find an epigenetic signature of responders to this uh, SSRI or non-responders to, to this particular uh, SNRI, we may be able to tailor uh, what medications to give it. And again, in psychiatry, this is very important because um, essentially there's a lot of trial and error that's done to, to find what medications uh, will work. And of course, um, uh, skilled psychiatrists can often uh, do a great job of, of getting there quickly, but I think with more and more antidepressants being prescribed uh, by general practitioners, having epigenetics as a tool to personalize uh, these treatments to people could ultimately lead to a lot less suffering in the future. And I think, you know, I, I know the, the FDA has before it some proposals regarding the reevaluation of all of their approved drugs to determine whether there are, in fact, germline effects. And that's a question we, we don't know about most of the drugs we take, whether they, you know, we have some indication um, whether they would be dangerous to take during pregnancy, but even in that case, there's, there's a lot of question marks. Uh, but there's, that's not routinely part of their, their testing, and it would be next to near impossible in humans, uh, although they could certainly look at whether germ cells are affected, um, but not whether it would continue. They can certainly look in animal models to see whether there's a transmission. Um, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, one of the, the known antidepressants, uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitor, is actually, you know, we know that it blocks various... Uh, monoamine oxidases and mm -hmm. keeps dopamine in, in the synapse. Um, but 
It also is a lysine demethylase inhibitor, which acts specifically on the histone code, on these nucleosome marks that can compact or relax DNA. And so, you know, the question is, well, when we give these drugs, we know that, that we're increasing the neurotransmitters in the, in the synapse almost immediately, and yet it takes about a month to work. Mm. Why? Right? So it could be that the efficaciousness of these medications could be due to transcriptional factors, could be due to how long it takes them to modify the epigenome and really get that transcriptional machinery in the neurons, in the cells, to change things and really change the underlying makeup of what's going on. But it does bring up that issue of, okay, you know, I'm taking antidepressants, it's working on my brain, that's good, but what is it doing? to the sperm or to the eggs, and does that matter, and what are the consequences, and uh, we don't know. Okay, questions? No questions? Please. Yeah, go yeah, ahead, to the, to the... And use the microphone, that would be at the stand. You know, one interesting aspect of genetics is that IQ is inherited. So I think it was Steven Pinker who said that if you look at a population of children and compare them to their parents, you could describe 50% of the genetic, 50% uh, of the IQ variation as being genetic. Now, a lot of studies seem to have indicated that during the course of your life, you can do things which improve your IQ. So the question is, over generations, can you do changes which can improve the IQ of, you know, your grandchildren as compared to the grandparents? Or is it something that is completely genetic? That's if you want it. I'm sorry? That's if you want them to be more intelligent than <laughs> you. <but> that's <laughs> that's, uh, that's evolutionary. <laughs> I'm more concerned about doing the reverse to my children, <laughs> reducing their IQs. But maybe you can know most about this. Oh, well, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think, uh, so, yeah, that's sort of one of those Lamarckian, it brings us back to the Lamarckian issue of can we make our son a, a good basketball player um, and then pass that on. And I don't know. I mean, I guess um, if you, if a lot of the uh, IQ factors, the genes that influence IQ are inherited by the DNA sequence, I could imagine that something you're doing might be, uh, could potentially free up those genes uh, in an inheritance way, but but I don't I don't know it's, it's it's quite speculative. I would also assume that it would be difficult to discern you know the factors that have caused you to improve your IQ as well because you're going to to impart through the your environment this you know you're going uh, this intelligence to your children. You're going to use bigger words. You're going to probably. Uh, focus on school a lot for them because you've, you know, come to value intelligence. So I think it's, it's tough to imagine what specific molecular mechanism that would work through. Um, and but I guess also, is, is IQ, I mean, IQ is based on certain questions that you answered. Right. It's not a... Right, you could be trained to answer those kind of questions better. But it's an interesting question, and the problem with human studies is firstly usually not allowed to do them 
So it's just observation of what's normally going on in the population, and they are really, really slow. I mean, people don't live long enough to do a study on someone else's offspring and their offspring. So we're going to have to wait. It's a great question, and I'm sure the future will answer it. But when, you know, going back to points you were making earlier about the twin study, so our our concept of heritability is based on you know, the models of twin studies that have been conducted historically. and We don't usually use that approach anymore. In fact, twin studies are now mostly epigenetic analyses because it's great because now you've got individuals who are monozygotic and then you can look at how they deviate in their epigenetic code over their, their lifespan. But I think the more people are learning about epigenetics and environmentally induced changes in gene activity, um, the more that I think we should question the basis for heritability estimates as, and the assumptions underlying those estimates. Because certainly monozygotic twins share more similar environment than we've been able to characterize. And if environment is laying down these epigenetic codes, we have to keep, keep that in mind. And it's hard to quantify, but I, I think it's something that we should kind of think about in the back of the, our mind. And certainly, as, as, as you mentioned, genes don't do anything unless they're instructed. And, and so that is what these gene regulatory mechanisms, epigenetic mechanisms do. And so though we may inherit uh, genes that will increase reaction time and uh, you know, the way in which we perceive, interact with the world, um, we, we can layer in more information on that, which leaves room for this epigenetic enhancement or decrement. I'd like to just make it a little bit more confusing. With the, uh, with the twin studies, one interesting aspect when it comes to epigenetics that is rarely ever taken into consideration is the issue of chorionicity. That has to do with when the twinning occurred. So if a twinning occurs very early, then everyone gets their own placenta and amniotic sac and everything, and we call these dichorionic twins. But if it occurs, 70% of twins occur after day four, and then we get a shared placenta, and we get these shared connections. And this makes everything really confusing because the twins share stem cells to a degree, which means that if we study the blood of those twins, they're going to have been swapping, and so it makes it harder. Um, and so if any of these factors um, were conferred into the later phenotype, then this is going to mess with the heritability estimates. If something in the, in the interuterine environment influences that IQ uh, that we're looking at heritability for, then this is going to mess with things. Also, just sharing doesn't, doesn't make it simple because they also don't share evenly. So uh, in extreme cases, we'll get what's called twin-to-twin uh, -twin transfusion syndrome, where one twin will be very nutritionally deprived and the, the genetically identical twins come out very different because they haven't had equal blood flow. And so uh, these factors, the chorionicity, is never taken into account uh, in twin studies and can greatly influence uh, heritability. Can epigenetic changes in those situations? Yeah, so um, we showed uh, a few years ago in 2009 that the monochorionic twins, the twins that share the um, blood stem cells are more epigenetically similar in blood because they share, but if you look at other cells like buccal cells, they're much more epigenetically different, probably because of these um, uh, nutritional effects. And this was then replicated uh, by four other groups or so. So it's a very robust finding that 
twins that share these blood connections are very unequal in the amount of epigenetic reprogramming that uh, they ultimately end up with. So does this mean that if you twin later, you're going to have more discordance for schizophrenia or depression or metabolic uh, syndromes? Maybe. So, but it's never quantified. People don't quantify the placenta. So we should. Yeah, come on to the... Uh, this has been studied. Um, we had Lamarck, non-Lamarck, and now we have epigenetics. Why, what took so long to get to this point? I think for the epigenetic field, we just started like 30, 40 years ago. Just realized these new mechanisms. Why not in the 1870s? 1900s? Well, I think Darwin's theory also included some of you know, Lamarckian's ideas. Just, I think people like to kind of take out of someone's theory the bit they, they, they like. like. <laughs> <laughs> Even uh, Darwin supported the, uh, the ideas of acquired, uh, you know, right. biological tree that can Absolutely. be inherited. Yeah. If yeah. you have, if, if pangenesis is your mm -hmm. theory of, of, of inheritance, mm -hmm. then the cells are modified by life and they shed particles and they're inherited. Um, I, it's interesting to think about the sociological factors at the time that led to the dismissal of Lamarck. Um, now, certainly, August Wiseman is usually attributed with that because he did an experiment rather than give example after example after example of the inheritance of acquired characteristics. He did a study. He chopped the tails off mice. The mice, the offspring of those mice did not have short mm -hmm. tails. The grand offspring of those mice did not have short tails. The great grand offspring of those mice did not have short tails. And he kept chopping each generation. So he tried. And, you know, and in fact, one experiment, you know, well characterized was, was seemed to be enough at the time. So that suggests that there were other sociological factors at the time that were probably swaying people away from the Lamarckian view. And also, August Wiseman presented the idea of the Wiseman barrier, whereby the germ cells were special and protected, right? And we still have that assumption that the germ cells are protected. They are different cells. They are certainly different cells from the rest of the body, but um, we have this an assumption in the back of our mind that what goes on with our other cells could not possibly affect those cells. And so that stayed in as a dogma, and, and I think still kind of influences the way people think about um, sperm and eggs. And I think really you need the molecular tools to be able to divine these, these, these changes. So um, when you have dogmas come into science, you need proof and very strong proof to get rid of them, not just uh, philosophical ideas. So I think part of why now is because now there are studies that are believable that do support these ideas, at least for passing on to several generations, like mm -hmm. studies that Francis has done. So now it's, there's evidence that's convincing, at least for short-term mm -hmm. Lamarckian inheritance. Another is a technology improvement. Like 100 years ago, we don't know how to you know, delete genes and uh, you know, to look at what's happening in the cell. Now we have uh, you know, very advanced technology just analyze all these phenomena in, at the molecular and the cellular levels yeah, to help understand to, to this phenomenon. 
Maybe we're getting smarter. <laughs> so I have uh, two questions. The first one is uh, more simple. Um, is the evidence showing that it's easier to turn on genes, or is it easier to turn off genes, or is it, you know, is one harder than another, or is it pretty much? Depends on the state of the gene that you're trying to turn on or off. Okay. If it's, if it's you know, solidly in a very tight chromatin structure, then it's very hard to turn on. So. I guess to answer your question, repressive states are easier to inherit than active states. So repressive states are more permanent in general. That's, that's, what, I, that's what I was getting at. Uh, the other question, I guess, pertains to hormesis. I don't know how familiar people on the panel are with hormesis or just homeopathy and things of that nature when you have a low exposure to toxins and stresses. But I'm thinking just... Uh, from a chronic point of view, like for example, if someone's running uh, and causing inflammation in the body, then you know much good comes from that as well. So I'm just thinking, as far as hormesis, if anyone does know about the subject uh, as it pertains to our health, um, how does that tie into epigenetics? I just uh, I'm enthused, I'm enthralled by the subject because um, I've been to many health conferences where they speak very favorably of hormesis, but I'm just, as I'm sitting through the panel, I'm, you know, I'm thinking to myself, perhaps uh, you can have damages that pass on to the next generation, and I don't know. Is that specific to inflammation? I'm not familiar with it. Or did you mention environmental toxins? Just homeopathy, are you familiar with that field, for example? Just the idea that the, um, a certain degree of stress on systems Yes. Low doses, and then you know, over the course of a lifetime, not just one instance that we, I, I don't know. This is more a health-related question. I, I understand that. Uh, well, we know that uh, things like exercise are good for depression and cognition, and they promote uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factors uh, that ultimately result in synaptogenesis um, yeah. in the hippocampus, and basically are very pro. Uh, good mood, and so that one mechanism that comes to mind is if you're, you know, if you have pro good mood, then you're not going to have these sort of uh, high cortisol levels that will be passed. So I don't know if you know the endorphins or epinephrine that you're generating are going to reprogram or pass the placenta in the same way that people are studying cortisol because people are studying cortisol and they're not studying that. But in right. theory they could or they'll at least reduce that and that is one way that you may pass um, your good mood on to your kids. Just a final note, I just I feel as if uh, in the very near future we'll discover how we're looking at how, you know, I feel like just on the subject of running, for example, it's, it's perhaps a double-edged double sword where they'll see, they're studying all the the good that comes from it, and then, oh, wait a second, 15, 20 years, <laughs> not running perhaps, but just other subjects, we didn't see that there was also this negative that was simultaneously happening with all the positive components. I love the feel. Thanks. Sure. Those cytokines uh, that you're creating could, if they epigenetically program, and, have an And effect. good and bad is so contextually dependent. So something can mm -hmm. be good in one context, but very bad uh, in another. And even low levels 
of maternal care, which we would say are bad, um, programs offspring to engage in less care, which we would say is bad, but it also enhances sexual reactivity. If you have teenage daughters, you probably think that's bad too, but if you're a rodent and you're trying to propagate offspring in a stressful environment, it's a very good thing. So. You know, it really, you know, thinking in terms of the way our body adapts, we adapt to the context we're in. Uh, that allows us to survive and propagate in that environment. Some of the characteristics we might see might seem maladaptive, but often that is in another context. So PTSD, for example, is, is a good example. Having, being vigilant, not being able to sleep, um, and, and being very anxious is not great if you're living in a lovely, wonderful, stress-free suburb, but probably very good if you're in a traumatized war zone. So, so that's another thought. I was curious uh, how we read the epigenetic marks. Does the standard gene sequencing machinery give you the epigenome? That's my basic question. And the second question is, uh, is my epigenome constant throughout my body? So I'll answer the f second one first. Um, is your epigenome constant? Absolutely not. Every single one of our cells has the identical DNA information, the identical genetic code in every cell. The only reason why our cells are different, like why some look like a hair cell, some look like a, you know, a skin cell, is because of the epigenetic information. And that's because the epigenetic information changes the chromatin structure, changes the chromosomes, either makes them more open or more closed, inaccessible, in a very local manner. So some genes can be accessed by the machinery that copies the information, and some genes cannot. So it's where those marks are along the genome that's critical. So then it sounds like there's a... The marks appear to give the to uh, differentiate the cells, Absolutely. but then the environment changes on top of that. Yeah. Is that yes. right? Yes, exactly. So if I wanted to know uh, my epigenome, I would have to look at each cell type yes. throughout my body. Yes, that sounds. Like and a lot even of work. in individual cells, that's mm -hmm. the technology right. that is now being developed. And in then my how, lab how would you read it? Let's say we yeah. took a skin cell of mine yeah. or yours. Yeah, so it depends what you want to read. If you want to read DNA methylation. There's a really clever trick where you just add a chemical called bisulfite, and it cha I always get this wrong. It either changes the methyl C's to a it, U, it or it's the other Actually, it converts any modified C, so it could be methyl, but it could be other yeah. groups, uh, to U. U. And then when you PC run PCR, it, runs it, it converts it to a T. It's a, so when you sequence, you get a C to T conversion if there's no methyl. Mm -hmm. um, and it won't convert if it's messed So that's really easy. Measuring histone modifications is a lot more difficult. You have to have an antibody that is specific to that particular histone modification. Mm -hmm. By modification, I mean a phosphate, an acetyl, a methyl group, a, small chemicals mm -hmm. or small um, <coughs> elements. The antibody has to recognize that mark, and then you do a technique called chromatin immunoprecipitation, where you shatter the genome into tiny fragments of about 500 base pairs, and then you immunoprecipitate. You pull down with an immobilized molecule the 
antibody and whatever chromatin is bound to it, and then you sequence that piece of DNA. So that is a lot more challenging, a lot more expensive, but I was talking to someone recently at um, Mass General that is developing that technique on a single cell basis. I mean, it's amazingly cutting edge. Probably shouldn't have said that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. The, the issue of the cell uh, differences in epigenome in response to the environment is a huge one when it comes to doing human studies. So especially if you're interested in behavior or uh, right. psychological state, because we're often interested in what's going on epigenetically in the brain, but we can't access that tissue. So we rely on blood and buccal cells. Um, the animal work suggests that for some epigenetic modifications, you might expect to see concordance between brain and, and blood or buccal cells, but um, for many other genes, you, you won't. So uh, it's really constrained the translation of a lot of the basic science to human studies. Yeah, and you're also going to get, uh, just a very brief point, you're going to get a soup of cells. If, you know, if you're taking the brain, you're going to get some dopaminergic neurons, mm -hmm. some serotonergic neurons, you're going to get a lot of glia and some oligodendrocytes, and you're going to get this you know, one number representative of all of that you know, based on looking at one position. So it, you know, it takes yeah, some single puzzle. cell technology, I think, is the way to go yeah, in the future. Yeah, single cell. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Very expensive. <laughs> I'm sure. Hi. Um, is, there, <coughs> excuse me, is there a relationship between epigenetics and um, character development? In what development? Is there a relationship between epigenetics and character development? Character. Um, not just personal, but you know, collective as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, I could say yes, but that's you know. Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so. What you're asking is to go from the level of a molecular modification in a cell to the way in which someone interacts with their environment on a regular basis. That's if we're talking about. about character or personality. And, you know, certainly the way in which, you know, your brain functions and your cell function is going to be determined by the gene regulatory mechanisms, epigenetic mechanisms in the cell. We don't know how you get from that. To, to these kind of broader states. Certainly, there's effects on stress hormone systems that have global effects on the way in which we behave and, and our personality. There will be effects on certain neuron populations in the brain that might affect your anxiety levels and depression or your risk-taking, let's say, as, a, as a, another character. Um, but we have a long way to go before we build in, you know, figure out the, the pathway where we get from one to the other. Even in animal models, it's, it's very challenging to do, unless we look at a very simple behavioral output. Um, it, it's challenging. Yeah, just to add on to that, I think it relates back to the last point, is that it's hard to study the brain. And so we know that, you know, character is going to be based in the brain, but, you know, we can do post-mortem studies in humans, and then we're looking at these soups of cells, uh, or we could look at the blood, but are the blood cells going to relate to different personality metrics? So, so you can assess personality metrics with psychiatric scales in live humans, but you can't look at their brain epigenome. Um, and so we may get there eventually, but the challenges of, of likening the epigenome to behavior now are limited to where we can look at behaviors that a mouse might uh, or a rat may exhibit. Did I hear you correctly? You localize character? You say it's in the brain? There are various psychological 
scales to assess, you know, psychiatry is always trying to quantify, you know, the, how much someone is extroverted versus introverted. Um, these are sort of, I guess, it depends on how you quantify character, but I may be uh, using a definition slightly different from yours. But any psychological state uh, may be assumed, perhaps, to uh, be coming from the brain. And as such, uh, it's a challenge, at least, to study that aspect of it. So. OK. Thank you. Go ahead. You're all so smart. Um, as a practicing physician, I'm very interested in maximizing the health of my patients. Um, what I really try to do is help them outsmart their genes, so to speak, and live the best, healthiest lives they can in preventing chronic disease and illness, and both in the mind and body. Wondering where you think, um, environmentally, we can get the most bang for our buck. Is it food, which is biochemical, exercise, um, meditation? You know, there's so much research out there. I'd love to hear from each of you, if you would, where we can really focus our attention in this fabulous field of actually influencing our own health. Thank you. All right, I'll, I'll start, I guess. Um, so there's been a lot of um, work on uh, the effects of various types of mindfulness-based meditation on um, depression, for example, and it's very, um, very efficacious uh, for that uh, based on meta-analyses. I don't know that people have necessarily looked at its effects on the epigenome so much, although, you know, using the transitive property of logic, we know that it will reduce your stress hormones and, and other endocrine factors that may reprogram your epigenome in, in positive ways. Um, so I know that that's good, but I can't answer the question of what's best. I mean, I think that if you're generally healthy and you're also going to you know, I mentioned earlier that exercise and endorphins can uh, increase brain-derived neurotrophic factor and these sort of mood-positive uh, factors that influence the brain in positive ways. You know, I can't say whether that's better than meditation or not. I would, you know, I like to do both. I think it, it helps. Um, and uh, I know less about diet other than sort of what's known from the amount of methylation cofactors or folate, B12, uh, B vitamins that can sort of, those act as the bricks that your, the building blocks that your, your methylating machinery uses to methylate DNA. So if you're like grabbing for methyl groups and you're out of them, you're not going to be methylated. So I mean, those dietary factors are going to be important if, uh, if you don't have them, uh, then this could, in theory, cause problems. I mean, I think all those factors will influence the epigenome, and they're good, but to quantify them is difficult. Yeah, I agree. I think the environment factors definitely play a key role in uh, the epigenomes. So we have a study uh, on, on diet. We, for example, look at the vitamin folate, okay, see how it's affecting uh, histone marks. We look at the yeast and the human cells. We showed there's strong correlations that the folate can affect the epigenetic marks, the histone modifications. So, uh, we believe, yeah, if you have a proper diet, it's definitely well, you know, can help uh, the health of, of the patients. Yeah. And this is terrible. I don't remember the details, but I do have colleagues in Houston that this is all they study is certain types of sprouts. They're not bean sprouts, but something similar to bean sprouts. And they see clear changes, um, beneficial changes in the m methylation 
profiles, and also protection against cancer. So there are, you don't have to take folate pills. There are definite um, sources of food that are beneficial. And if you like later, if you give me your email, we can, I can put you in touch with people. So I, you know, I've always, because I work with mothers and, and their children, I'm, you know, a really strong advocate of social support um, as a way of modulating stress reactivity, enhancing mother-infant interactions, and thus, you know, modifying the epigenome. And so I think social support in general is probably really essential, but that's more of a kind of a group-level intervention rather than uh, individual. So at an individual level, I'd probably be most influenced by um, the Columbia Center for Children's Environmental Health work, where they look at various pollutants in Manhattan and how they affect the brain, uh, especially when they're experienced by mothers who are pregnant, but certainly not limited to that level of exposure. So, you know, one of the toxins we, ex we study is bisphenol A, BPA, that's made in, it's used in the manufacture of plastics. So whenever you drink out of plastic bottles, you get BPA in your system. So I would try and reduce exposure as much as possible to that. It's an endocrine disrupting chemical. You get it when you touch um, grocery store receipts. Um, and it has epigenetic effects, so um, certainly, and, and I think now they're, you know, certainly looking a lot more at phthalates and other exposures as well that come from the various, various chemicals that we unfortunately are exposed to in, in New York. Okay. Oh, there's one more. Um, yeah, this has to do with uh, mother-infant dyads, a question about uh, infant observational research. And much of the language that has been used that could um, apply at that macro level has used the word stress. And yet there are much more subtle sort of relationships that go on in the mother-infant dyad than stress would seem to... Uh, account for. So for example, in something called the social referencing paradigm at six months of age, you put a child on a visual cliff, that is it's a, a glass and there's a drop, but you can crawl across because there's a glass, and the mother stands at one end, the infant is allowed to crawl, and the infant starts to crawl, gets to the, the cliff, what looks like a cliff, and then will crawl forward or not, depending on the mother. In each case, the mother is asked to uh, uh, ask the kid to keep crawling toward her. And some infants will look at the mother, be um, uh, calmed by her expression, her encouragement, and will continue across, will feel confident in her confidence. Others won't look or will look and will be too afraid to continue. Uh, that's at six months. A year later, there's a correlation between those uh, six-month-old who followed their mother's instructions, trusted them enough to continue crawling, and what's called secure attachment, which is, I'm sure you know about, it's been measured in a variety of different ways. Um, the same mothers, if they had been tested on the adult attachment inventory, that whole group of mothers, uh, at six months of pregnancy, would have been, we would have been able to predict from their responses on that inventory, which asks questions about their early relationships, 
we would have been able to predict what their 12-month-old children would be like on a measure of their security of attachment to the mother. So there, there are a number, and this is just skimming the surface, there are a number of very important findings in the, mother, in the infant observational research that pertain to the mother-infant diet and the nature of the bond, really the individual difference in the bond. And somehow stress doesn't capture the subtleties of that. You guys are definitely talking about the biological mechanisms that underpin the kind of behavioral differences that are being seen in this kind of research. But is there something else that you could name besides stress? Is there some other, or do you find some way of translating stress into these subtle uh, interactional differences in mothers and infants? Yeah, I think the, the, the bias in what you know, we study and what has been studied in the field is based on what you can do in the lab and experimentally. Yes. And you can't look at these attachment relationships in, in, the, you know, in the basic science models that we use in the lab. Um, that said, there's probably, you know, what you're describing is the transmission of attachment security from one generation right. to the next. So there's probably some correlate to that, and certainly we see that the degree and reliability of mother-infant interactions does transmit from mothers to daughters in, in rodent models, but we don't assess it, obviously, in the same way. We're looking at something that we can quantify the level of tactile stimulation. Right, but you look at licking and sucking and in rap pups. Exactly. Which is so, you know, when we, when we talk about stress, it's because it's something that is comparable. You know, we, can, we, can, we know about stress physiology in, in, in this model. We know a little bit about it in humans. Whether what we're studying in these basic models can be applied, I mean, I, cer I certainly it could. It'd just be operationalizing what is it that we think is driving the epigenetic change in both generations mm -hmm. um, and getting our hand handle on that. And I think, you know, it's just the field is moving extraordinarily fast, um, you know, when, when you think of it comparative to other fields, but it's still very early doors, I think, for applying what we know in terms of the basic science to extrapolating to these kind of real social interactions in humans. But what you were saying about bringing in support, being helpful, mm -hmm. really does translate to the macro level of certain kinds of interventions that you can do in, with these mother-infant dyads that have uh, correlates at the biological level. Yeah. It's just, just what is there's something so, other than yeah. stress hormones. Yeah, yeah. Name. No, I, certainly. But I think we're, we're probably uncomfortable going much further than that because, you know, when I look at a rat, it's not, you know, there's no social referencing and there's, you know, so it's just that we want to keep it true to the models that we work with um, rather than going too far afield. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.